You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Skoog. I'm an intern here at Bethel Bible. I don't know what in the world got into the mind of Clint to let me back up onto this stage, but I'm here, and you guys are stuck with me, so buckle up, folks. We're in for a ride. Well, it is a joy to get to come before you today to open up God's very word together, to look at God's truth And to learn more about who the God is that loves us and how we can shape our lives and center our lives more and more around him. Well, real quick, I just ask that everyone bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's just take a moment to still our hearts before the Lord. Right now, I I want you to ask that the Lord would... Silence your mind, quiet your heart, still your soul, that you would be sensitive to his spirit, that you would hear what he has to say to you today. Just take a moment and pray for that. Lord God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to stand up on this stage to bring forward the word of God. Lord, I pray as I speak that it's not any of my glory that's magnified, but yours and yours alone. God, we trust that truth is only from you and help us to know more and more of who you are today and the abundant love that you have for us. Lead us today. Let our hearts be sensitive to what you want to say to us and let us know you more and love you more because of it. In your name we pray, amen. What is your purpose in life? That is kind of the the central question at the core of what I want to talk about today. But before we get into that topic, I want to tell you guys a little story. Now, this is a, a story that I actually experienced something that, that happened in my life. It uh, was back when I was in, I think, about fourth grade. Now, my, my dad's actually here. I didn't tell him I'd be telling this exact story, but um, he's actually in it. So I hope you enjoy it. We'll see. So in fourth grade, my family packed up all of our belongings, and we moved to this little bitty town just in North Texas called Double Oak, Texas. It's a, it's a smaller town, kind of a, a sleepier, quiet, a little more rural. Uh, we moved into this, this house that had some character, let's just say. It was this old house, this rental house, and had some character. But man, this house had a big yard. Little fourth grade John was so excited. I mean, there were trees to climb, little critters to catch. There was a pool. I mean, come on, there was a swimming pool. I was having a good time. But then in the backyard... Let me tell you, there was this shed. And in this shed was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen at that point. It also had some character, but it was a John Deere riding lawnmower. And oh man, let me tell you. Sure, it, it may have not had the, the hood covering, so the engine was exposed, but it was, it was cool. And I wanted to ride that mower. Now, 
my dad and my, my older brother, they would be doing yard work and I'd be watching and man, I, I earnestly wanted to get on that thing. My hands burned to, to hold that black steering wheel to settle into that nice bright yellow John Deere seat. But you know, I, I was young, uh, so it wasn't quite my time yet. Eventually, as uh, you know, the, the days turned to weeks, weeks turned to months, and in the summer, my dad finally said, hey, John, it's your time. It's your turn. Come on over here. He sat me down in the chair, showed me kind of how to, to operate it, the gas, the brake, the ignition, all of that, and my eyes were wide, and there was just a lot going on. One thing he said stuck with me. This mower, particularly, if you stood up off the seat, the engine would kill. So it needed some weight in the seat. But worst comes to worst, if I don't know what to do, I guess I could just stand up and the engine would kill itself. It would stop, so then I'd be good. So I, I, I took hold of that, but I just really wanted to drive this thing. I mean, come on, here I am on a John Deere riding lawnmower. This was cool. My dad gave me a purpose. It was very clear. He said, John... I want you to mow the lawn. Here's how you're going to do it. And he, he kind of showed me, we're just making simple circles. You know, I know there's some people, they do the, that nice checkered pattern or different ways, but I, I was just doing simple circles. That was my purpose. Mow the lawn. It was simple. So I get up, I get going, and oh, man, I could feel the wind rustling through that fourth grade buzz cut that I had. Woo-wee. I felt like Dale Jr. up there. Like, I was just, I was going. And, you know, I'm making my circles, but... Then as I go, I start having a lot of fun. I start going fast, and I'm sure it must have been blazing speed on that riding lawnmower, let me tell you. And I round a corner. Oh, no. I realize I'm headed directly for the house, and I I didn't know what to do. I forgot, you know, in the midst of all that, where the the brake was, how to stop the thing. But I, I remembered, okay, I just need to stand up. It'll stop. I stand up. It didn't stop. We kept going. And boom, I plowed right into that flower bed. And I'm headed straight for the house through the flower bed. I'm sure, you know, me on this riding lawnmower, we're going to tear down the house. We're going to destroy it. But in the nick of time, my dad was there. He came over, stopped the thing, got me off of it. Now, I was apologizing profusely. I felt so bad. I just messed up part of the flower bed. I was really embarrassed. And he looked at me, he said, and still stuck with me. John, I can replace the mower, but I can't replace you. You don't need to apologize. Now, that's a fun story, but I think it kind of illustrates something that I want to talk about today. I was given a clear purpose. I was meant to mow the lawn, but the great temptation of speed overtook my mind, and I lost sight of my purpose. And eventually, that led me onto a path of certain destruction. I mean, I I probably would have mowed down the whole house. Gone. The pleasure that I was seeking distracted me from the purpose that I had. And so, again, I ask you today, what is your purpose? Now, when I ask that question, I know at least when I, I think of that question, a lot of things start coming to mind. I think of the different skills and abilities that I have. I think of the different things that God has put into my life. Maybe it's serving people. Maybe that's my purpose on this earth. Maybe it's caring for animals. Maybe that's my purpose on this earth. Or teaching or having a family or all of the different things that God has equipped us with. Maybe that is the direction 
and the purpose that God has for my life. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that that's wrong. That is not your purpose. Your purpose is not any of those things. In fact, you have one purpose. That purpose is to know God and be known by him. Everything else, all the things that God has given us is built on top of that. But your purpose, it's knowing God and being known by him. He's not interested in what you can do for him more than he's interested in having you and knowing you. That's it. So that thought right there, that our purpose is knowing God, being known by him, being near to God, abiding with God. That's kind of the, the undergirding foundation for all that we're going to look at today. So I just ask that you keep that in your mind as we open up this text. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be at chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 22. Now, I know it's been a hard kind of jump back into the Corinthians series. I know we had all of Advent and all that Christmas entailed, but thankfully Clint got us started back up. And now we get to jump right back in to Paul talking to the Corinthian church. Starting at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed or offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 
Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The word of the Lord. So, if we think back to what the Corinthians were doing, right? Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and we see a church that is using their title of being Christians, their partaking in something like communion, and overall their, their religiosity is kind of a, a cover-up, an excuse, if you will. They're saying, hey, I, I'm in Christ, so none of this engagement with the world, none of that really matters. Like, I can do whatever I want, because at the end of the day, I'm saved, I'm in Christ, and I can just keep on living however I want to do. Now, Paul's writing this letter, and he's saying, guys, that is not what it means to be a Christian. And now, at the end of chapter 9, as Clint was preaching on, Paul gave us a, a great picture of his way of pursuing the Lord, his mindset behind it. He's running like a, like a runner in a competition. He has his eyes fixed on the prize that he may not lose sight of it and be disqualified. And now he's opening the discussion up to the church at large. And he's saying, hey, I see the way that you're running. And guys, you're headed down a path to destruction and it is not good. Today I'm going to be talking a lot about idolatry. Now when I say the word idolatry, often we think of kind of these little graven carved images. We think of, you know, the Greeks or the Romans, these pagan cultures bowing down to something that's not God. But I actually want to broaden our understanding of what idolatry really is. Idolatry is when we take anything and we set it higher than God in our attention, our devotion, or our desires. It's when we take anything and we set it higher than God in our attention, our desires, or our devotion. That is idolatry. It's not just bowing down to a, a pagan god. Sometimes it's creating our own little g gods and setting them above God. And the first thing that idolatry does, well, it, idolatry, it destroys our purpose and distracts our attention. It takes our eyes off of the Lord and it sets something up higher in the Lord's place. Let's look at the first five verses here. So Paul, he's, he's talking now, giving an example, pointing back to the Israelites. He's saying, you Corinthians, you, you Gentile church, you're actually related to the Israelites. They're your fathers because you are the people of God. And if you're the people of God, their example Man, it means a lot to you. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, the Israelites, were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, right here, Paul kind of sets up a, an important point, right? Remember the Corinthians, they're using their identity as Christians as kind of a license to do what they want to do. And Paul's saying, hey, even the Israelites, God's chosen people, they all were led out of Egypt. They were kind of baptized through the water. They went through the cloud. And that itself was not an excuse for them to behave however they wanted, 
That was not an excuse for them to now be safe to go choose whatever gods they wanted to choose. In fact, Paul then links a lot of things that led to their destruction. But there's a big difference here. A difference between kind of brazen arrogance and confidence. Right? As, as Christians, we have confidence. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord himself says, any that the, Father's, the Father gives me, I will never forsake. If we are his, we are his. We have confidence in that. Nothing can shake us. Nothing can steal us away from the love of God. We are his, and that is confidence. Arrogance says, okay, I see what's going on here. If I have grace, man, it's all covered. I can go do whatever I want. I can go seek after anything else because grace abounds. And Paul's saying, hey, watch out. That right there, that is dangerous, and that is a path to destruction. The Israelites could not arrogantly rest in their religious status and then use that as a license for doing right in their own eyes. And let's see what happened. Let's go to verse 6. Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There Paul's saying idolatry. It wasn't just the, the idol worship. It was kind of like some pleasure, some desires that they were pursuing, some of their activities of pleasure. He didn't say, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, they made a golden calf. No, he said the action that followed the golden calf, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. There's kind of a deeper thing. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Another form. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So here Paul's highlighting a lot of different sins, but it all boils down to one sin. The foundation for all sin ultimately is idolatry. Any sin that we are faced with ultimately is a temptation to take our eyes off of God and onto something else. I think of Romans 1.26. Paul, he says, the people exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and served the creature rather than the creator. That is the foundation of all sin. Whether your eyes are fixed on yourself, your circumstances, or something else, that misdirection of our, our gaze, that misdirection of our view on the Lord, that is the foundation for everything else that follows. So all of these sins that Paul is highlighting all comes out in this conversation of idolatry. There is a pedestal on our hearts. This pedestal on our hearts can only fit one object of desire, one object of attention. It's the rightful place for God. Only God belongs on this pedestal of our hearts. But so often, we take God off. We might say that we want him up there, but really, we're holding on to something else. And when the attention and affection of our hearts replaces the Lord for a lesser God, destruction follows. I'm going to say that again. When the attention and affection of our hearts 
replaces the Lord for a lesser God, destruction follows. And I want to ask, what idol do you often find fighting for control of your heart's pedestal? What idol in your life do you often find yourself and devoting a lot of your attention, a lot of your desires to. For a lot of us, I know sometimes that's comfort. Sometimes we know what the Lord has said for us, but instead of walking in obedience, we choose our comfort over what God has called us to do. Sometimes we choose power. We desire position in front of others and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. Sometimes we choose approval and we care more about what other people say about us than what we care to think about what God says about us. We choose to value more the voices of others in our lives rather than the voice of God in our lives. Sometimes we choose control. I know, I, I fall in this camp. I would be happy to follow the Lord as long as I can still kind of keep my, my hands on the reins. I'd, I'd love to go wherever you lead, Lord, but I kind of want to stay in control. There are so many different forms of idolatry that are quick to take over the affections and desires of our hearts. And I think a good framework to kind of help us identify these idols in our lives are the, the but-ifs. So if ever you say the phrase, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go if you do this. Or you say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, but I'm holding on to this. Whatever it is that kind of comes into your mind there, anything that's followed by the, the but or the if, that's an idol. It's trying to hold you more then God holds you. What matters more to you? That God is glorified or that you have a comfortable life? That, that God is glorified or the Republicans control the government? That God is glorified or your family is healthy? Maybe or you get the job you want or that others like you or that you're not alone. What matters more to you? So today, I want you to just start thinking what idols are competing for the attention, the affection, the desires of my heart. And in this passage, Paul is giving us a big warning sign. He's saying, watch out because the road to idolatry, it leads to destruction. Now, Christians are safe in the Lord's arm. Arms. I want to make that very, very clear. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ, and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of the Father. But often, the way that the Lord keeps us walking with him is by putting up these big warning signs saying, don't go down that path because that leads to destruction. It's the way that he keeps us walking with us. And here, Paul is giving us one of these big warning signs. That warning is in verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed. Be warned. Don't be comfortable 
Don't just say, oh, I'm a Christian, so, man, I, I'm all set. I can just be comfortable and go about and do whatever I want. This is a warning here. It's a warning against that mindset. And trust me, it's a warning that I need to. There have been so many times where I've been faced with kind of that tug of war, that tension in my heart where I know what God is calling me to do, but man, I really want to pursue something else. Been alone in my room and really been torn. Man, should I, should I watch that? Been felt with pain and loss and loneliness and felt like I, I want to run away from God rather than run to God. I've been there, and I know that it is a hard tug of war. But it is so important that we heed this warning. But what's also so cool is that God does not leave us alone in this. As God often does, he presents us a great big warning, but then he says, hey, you're not alone. In fact, I am with you, and I'm going to provide for you. Think back to little fourth grade John riding on that lawnmower. Sure, I had gone right into the flower bed and I was headed for the house, but my father came, really wasn't outside of his control, and he got me off, kept me safe, saved the day. I know all, all analogies break down, but that's a picture of what our God does for us. He's never outside of control and he has us. See, idolatry's defeat, it only comes from God and through nearness to God. It's not something that you can work for. It's something that God calls you to, but it's defeat only comes from God and through nearness to God. Starting at verse 13, Paul says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Why? Or so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, when we hear that word temptation, we hear this verse often, we kind of liken this to something that I hear a lot in the church. You know, this verse is used especially towards sexual temptation and things like that. Saying, hey, you can always run away. Don't worry, there is always a means of escape. You can run away. Or, you know, all the, the other little types of temptation. But I actually want to help us understand more about what this word means. This Greek word for temptation, it's also used for testing. And see, I, I argue that it is a lot more than just these little temptations that we have. This is in every single circumstance. Every temptation, every time that we are tested or going through a trial and we feel the temptation to take our eyes off of God, God provides a means of escape and a way to endure it. Remember, the foundation of all sin is idolatry. And the way that God provides it's not just running away from something. It, in fact, is nearness to God. And we see in these verses, there's kind of a flow. First, Paul makes it very clear. He says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. But how does the solution come? First, he presents God's character. God is faithful. And that's the foundation for everything. God is faithful and he's not going to leave you alone. Out of that... 
God then gives us the means of escape. And the means of escape is abiding in and with him. Now, I know in my life, there have been so many times where I've tried to work and work and work, discipline myself, my body, my spirit, so hard to keep myself from sin. But over and over and over again, I keep falling back into it. Until I realize that the point is not to just say no to some sin, it's to say no because, man, if I pursue this road, I lose the intimacy I have with God. My value is not dependent on my performance. Rather, my value is dependent on God, on knowing him. That's everything. We can't get the cart in front of the horse. You can't rely on your own self-discipline to save you from sin. Rather, you rely on the Lord, on being near to him. And out of that, he builds in you discipline and spiritual fruit. And out of that, we flee from idolatry. You are not running from sin to get to God. You run to God and by doing that, get away from sin. I think it's very clear in the way that God calls us to bear fruit. Think about it. In in John 15, Jesus says this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember, your purpose, it's to be near to God. He's not concerned with your performance. He's concerned with your person. He's not concerned with your Christian lifestyle. He's concerned with your very Christian life. He wants you. You are his beloved. And newsflash, if he wanted someone who could perform perfectly and keep themselves from sin, he wouldn't have chosen you. That's the thing. Now, this isn't a license to go out and do whatever we want, as Paul made very clear but rather we have confidence. It helps us know how to direct our gaze, direct where we're looking. Run to God. Our solution is not performing some perfect behavior to save ourselves. Your discipline won't save you. See, the means of escape that God provides when the world is swirling around you, when you're dealing with pain and loss or temptation, desire, the solution is to run to God, to fix your eyes firmly on him, to desire him in nearness to him. And out of that, he will provide the means of escape. And see, there at the end, Paul says, therefore, flee from idolatry. The running from idolatry, it comes from this. And the reason to follow God, it's never to avoid punishment, destruction, or hell. We don't follow God out of fear. He has loved us, and out of the abundance of his love, we love him. Now, Paul has, has given us this warning sign and he's then made it clear 
how God provides for us. But now, why does this all matter? What's, what's the big reason behind all of this? I mean, why does it matter that I choose God over the idols in my life? Well, as the passage continues, Paul makes it very clear the why. Idolatry chooses the world over God. And now I, I know you're saying, of course, John, you literally just spent however long telling us this very fact that idolatry chooses the world over God. But let's look at the text and let's see why this is so important. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? See right here, Paul is saying that as we participate in the world, now there's no gods, these pagan gods, they're not real, but there is real darkness in the world. Right back in chapter 8, Paul said, the food sacrificed to these gods, it's, it's clean, you can eat it, because these gods aren't real. So he's not contradicting himself here, but he's saying there's real darkness in the world, and you are of the light. You belong to the light. How can you then fellowship with the world? How can you partake of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons? This is Paul's bigger point. If you are in Christ, you are his. You're part of his body, his bride. And any form of fellowship with the world is spiritual adultery. It's unfaithfulness. Christ laid down his life for you and you are now his. I mean, how could a husband have any intimacy with his wife if his wife is pursuing all of these adulterous relationships, hundreds and hundreds of them? There would be no intimacy there. And Paul's saying, we are Christ's. We are his. We cannot then go and walk in the world and fellowship with that darkness. See, you once were dead in your sins. You once lived in that darkness. You were an enemy of the cross of Christ your God was your stomach and your end was destruction. That's where you lived. And because of that, you deserved nothing but death and eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is death. But God, in his abundant love and mercy, he took on your form. He became a human man and he came among us. He lived that perfect life that God demanded. God is holy and he demanded perfection. And we all failed. We deserve death, but Christ, he came and he lived in the light. And he walked among us. He abided with God and he never fell into sin. 
Because of that, he didn't deserve death, but he humbled himself to obedience and he went to the cross. Not because he deserved it, but because we did. On our account, Christ came and went to the cross. He bled and died and was nailed to that cross in our place. Our sins were cast on him. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as Christ died and was buried, so we too as Christians are buried with him. And as he rose again, we now have eternal life. There's hope and goodness We're joined with him. But real quick, maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're saying, John, I'm still in that world of darkness. I'm still pursuing all of these pleasures in my life. I'm still finding my purpose in so many other things than just knowing God. And it is empty. It's alone. It's hard. It's sad. It's desperate and it is dark and I need light. Well, today I can with confidence stand before you and say that the Lord has called me out of that darkness. And I'm sure most of us here can say the very same thing, that God has called them out of darkness and now the life that we live, it's so free. It's so bright and it is so good. Following Christ, it is free. It is costly, though. Christ says, come to me. I will take on your burdens. You do not have to bear it anymore. But that crown of your life, that control, you need to lay it at my feet. And I know that's scary. But he is good. And I urge you today, if if you have never given that control to Christ. Or you want to know more what that looks like, please come find one of us. Come to me, come to Clint, come to any of us here. We would love nothing more than just to tell you what it means to follow Christ. Because he is good and he has life. But Christian, I urge you today, that gospel, that is your story and it, It didn't just define you back then. It still defines you now. There is abundant grace and mercy, but now there is a life out of that nearness to God that needs to be lived for God. God is faithful. He is going to provide all that you need. But he desires you. And I urge you today, Take stock of your heart. Come before the Lord and ask, God, what ways am I pursuing other things besides you? What is that thing that I'm holding on to and I'm saying, God, you can have everything else but just not this. This one's mine. What is that thing? What is that idol? Remember, you're not going to be able to escape temptation or idolatry on your own. You need to rest in God and his faithfulness, and trust him that he is good, and he's going to provide and give you everything that you need. But in that, I urge you today, come before him and say, Lord, 
I give you all of my life. I'm yours. Surrender to him. Because the God of the universe desires you. And he desires all of you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.